I'm Lauren Berry, and this is Odyssey's On Deadline podcast, where you get a closer look at top stories out of our radio newsrooms across the country. So who's ready to make some noise? Lots of fans were eager to do just that this summer. So much so that On Deadline today, we have a wave of concert tours that made a considerable impact on local economies. Megastars Beyonce and Taylor Swift both hit the road this summer, giving economies and fans alike a much-needed boost in business and happiness, respectively. And no discussion of concert season would be complete without mentioning the master himself, Jimmy Buffett, who died earlier this month and was mourned by concert-goers for many reasons, one of which was that they missed out on a Margaritaville summer for the first time in decades. As the granddaddy of them all, Buffett was the original creator of concerts as franchise events. Buffett was a billionaire, thanks in part to an estimated $570 million he earned from touring and recording. ABC News said Buffett built an empire based on Caribbean-flavored pop that celebrated the Florida Keys, sunshine, and nightlife. Another empire builder is Beyonce, who started up her mega-renaissance tour across the pond in Stockholm, Sweden. That nation saw a brief inflation spike due to tens of thousands of fans rushing to the city to see her perform, according to Michael Gran, the chief economist at Dansky Bank. Hotels more than an hour outside the city were selling out to those looking to attend the show. Back in the U.S., fans of Beyonce and Taylor Swift didn't seem as worried about prices for hotels as they were for prices of tickets to go see the two stars perform. Michael Wolf from Activate Consulting joined Odyssey to discuss why fans were still flocking to buy tickets despite sky-high prices that soared to $11,000 on the resale market to see Swift in Los Angeles. People will pay any price and bear any burden to see these shows, even if the tickets are way outside their budget. Yeah, I mean, a couple things have been driving it, and then I can give you some numbers. But first of all, there's been pent-up demand for live events post-COVID. And people want to get it, get out there. It's a communal experience. People, it's, it's, it's other fans. There's also been a long wait between t- tours. And so people want to see their favorite artists. And then in addition to that, the tours have been able to increase prices. So if I go through our, for, our Activate Forecast show, that by the end of 2023, there's going to be $31 billion that's spent by consumers on, on live concerts. And that, that's going back, that we're back above 2019 levels of $29 billion. We forecast that we're going to get to $36 billion in annual revenue by the end of 2027. Taylor Swift and Beyonce, are they on the billionaire list, and will they be once their tours are through? Well, they're both heading there anyways. But if you look at the tours, Taylor Swift, by the time she's done, there's going to be 131 shows, including international. And we forecast it's going to be as much as $1.5 billion in revenue. Beyonce's Renaissance tour, she's scheduled to do 57 shows, likely to pass a billion. And let's remember, these shows are in big stadiums. I mean, that's where the growth is going to be. It's in other acts that are going to go out. Bruce Springsteen, Harry Siles, Ed Sheeran, Luke Combs. There's going to be, and Drake. I mean, there's going to be, and, and by the way, let's not forget, there are artists that don't have big current hits, like the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Coldplay. They're out touring. Adele is in the middle of her Vegas residency. People people are eating it up. They, they, they want to spend more time, even though the economy's tough.
That outrage that Wolf discussed came after the release of Swift's tickets for her Eras tour last fall. Thousands trying to buy tickets were met with a headache when resellers snatched up tickets just to flip them for an exorbitant amount later. Despite the outrage and the high prices, tens of thousands of people have managed to show up to see Beyonce and Taylor night after night. Carolyn Sloan, assistant professor of economics at the University of Chicago, joined Odyssey on the West Coast to discuss how tickets are sold and resold. As you know, there was complete outrage. Do you think lawmakers uh, listen to the outrage or does Ticketmaster just have better lobbyists? <laughs> I think that lawmakers definitely listen to the outrage. So uh, one way to kind of look at it is that there hasn't been a lot of action because we haven't really seen a lot of kind of completed and passed legislation, but we have seen a flurry of policy activity. So this is an area that fans have always been grumpy about for good reason. So we've seen, you know, over the decades, artists kind of protesting against ticketers, fans getting upset, bills being introduced. And since the era's pre-sale, we've seen legislation introduced at the state level, at the federal level, and the Senate Judiciary Committee even had a hearing where the big players, Live Nation, Geek, um, which is a reseller, and promoters and artists and antitrust experts were all present there. Um, but we have had a lot of frustration. So as you're saying, um, AB8 got pretty pared down in the California legislature. Um, and also um, in Colorado, we saw the veto of a bill that would have uh, provided uh, some relief in terms of ticketing uh, reform. So like a lot of issues in American politics, there are powerful lobbies on some sides of the issue. And also it's not clear that there is consensus about uh, what the public wants to see happen. And I want to kind of piggyback on that because at first blush, it looks like a straightforward consumer rights issue. But then you look at all of the people who are stakeholders in all this and they don't agree on a lot of the issues. It looks, seems like the biggest disagreement is whether to allow teams and venues and artists to restrict how fans could resell tickets that they bought. Would you agree with that? I would agree. That's a big sticking point when it comes to the legislation. And, you know, it's tough. As an economist, we believe that robust secondary markets, so that's markets in which we can resell something, are important and make for healthy primary markets. And also just kind of thinking about when you buy a ticket to a show, something might come up, you might not be able to get a babysitter, you want to cancel, you don't want that ticket to go to waste. And on the other hand, maybe all of a sudden you have a Friday night open and you'd like to buy a show. So that's nice to have secondary markets. But when we have kind of big predatory scalpers in secondary markets that are using like bot technology to limit the supply, that's not really a healthy secondary market. So on one side, we see the need to really reform some kind of the worst behavior in the secondary markets. On the other hand, people, when they buy something, they kind of really see that as a property right that they have over that ticket and uh, reasonably don't want to kind of relinquish what they can do with that asset. So it is really a sticking point between what, uh, considering what you can do with the secondary market reform. Swift and Beyonce are both living legends in their own rights, and the world said goodbye this month to another music legend who had a surprising impact on the economy. Buffett, known for his song Margaritaville, lost his battle with Merkel cell carcinoma earlier this month, passing at the age of 76 in his New York home. While Buffett left behind a library of music, he also left behind his business empire. 
And Syracuse professor Bob Thompson, who is also the director of the Center for Television and Popular Culture, joined Odyssey to discuss the music icon. I mean, certainly this guy was a franchise unto himself, but uh, he's born on Christmas Day, 1946, which, of course, has all kinds of symbols to it. 1946 is the first year of the baby boomers, and he became a uh, certainly a star of that generation. The parrot heads were baby boomers. And, you know, he did born in Mississippi, raised in Alabama, but then he, of course, uh, exchanges cowboy hat uh, country music for you know, a Aloha shirt and cowboy boots for flip-flops and really becomes a kind of genre unto himself. And then nothing stops him. Books and kids' books and Broadway and uh, uh, restaurant chain and T-shirts and footwear. Uh, I mean, this guy was a billionaire by the time he passed. Yeah, it's funny, though, Bob, because typically, you know, in order for a star to have that kind of, of staying power the way that Jimmy Buffett has, you know, you see more in terms of on the charts, you know, the big charts. But Margaritaville was his only song to actually make it on the charts. So what were some of his other songs that people would know? And why did he have the staying power? Right. Well, uh, if you go to his 1985 uh, Greatest Hits album, which has got a great title, it's Songs You Know By Heart. But the uh, subtitle is uh, Jimmy Buffett's Greatest Hit. And then the S is in parentheses, acknowledging, <laughs> of course, that Margaritaville was his great one. But uh, he also had uh, what's generally called the Big Eight, Come Mondays, Son of the Son of a Sailor, Finns, Cheeseburger in Paradise. What are the other ones? Changes in latitude, changes in attitude, Pirate Looks at 40. So he's he had a bunch of hits. But you are right. It was Margaritaville that uh, is usually uh, in the title of his restaurants and his uh, tequila and beer and his everything else, his serious radio channel. And, you know, sometimes one song is enough. And that song has penetrated the culture in a way that very, very few songs are able to do. That whole uh, kind of ethos of chilling, but a little bit of melancholy in it. I don't think there's anybody alive who hasn't at least heard that song at some place. And, and if you haven't, just go to a wedding reception. It'll get there eventually. <laughs> so true. Then, of course, the restaurant chain here in Syracuse, New York. I can go to a Margaritaville, and since it's in a mall and there's no windows, I can go in October or May while it's snowing and not see the snow because there aren't any windows. From cheeseburgers in paradise to alien superstars and antiheroes, there's no denying that popular music not only permeates our culture, but serves as an important economic driver. According to the Recording Industry Association of America, the music industry adds $170 billion in revenue annually to the U.S. gross domestic product. It supports nearly 2.5 million jobs across a wide range of professions and accounts for more than $9 billion in export sales. In the wake of this megatour summer, Swift's tour has already moved abroad, and Beyonce's is coming to a close on October 1st. Some experts are now worried that the summer's economic high will turn into an economic hangover by the end of the year. This show is produced by Joe Heady, Christy Strauser, Myron Kaplan, and Bill Smee. 
I'm Lauren Berry, and I want to say thanks for listening to the On Deadline podcast, Odyssey's deeper look at a top news story just for you. Subscribe on the Odyssey app or wherever you find your podcast to stay informed.